You're beautiful. Be seated, please. Chad, while we were singing that, I was thinking that there may be some folks here, well, no, not today, so young they would wonder where you got that new chorus from, you know, that brand new song they've never heard before, so, uh, but probably not us, right? Good to see you today. My wife sends her regards. My wife's mother was the youngest of 14 children. Can you imagine? 14 children. Yeah. The first 13 were brought into this world by her grandmother, who was the midwife. They lived on a farm in Minnesota, and that's how you did it. By the time my mother-in-law came along, her grandmother had died, and there was a blizzard, and her father had to go through the blizzard and find a neighbor who could kind of be a midwife and bring her back, and that's how my mother-in-law was born, if you can imagine. Well, anyway, the last of her living relatives passed away last week. Uh, the 10th or 11th in order, I think, Uncle Oscar passed away. And so Janet drove her mom to northern Arkansas yesterday for the memorial service and got home late last night. So she sends greetings, but uh, she's there recovering, resting uh, from all of that experience. And I'm praying for my mom-in-law. She's amazing. I don't know why she let me in the family. She doesn't either, but, you know, she, she's incredible. And she's 82, and she's just moving right on. And she's the last member of the family, which is kind of tough. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here. As gloomy as it is outside, I sense the warmth and the fellowship of your Holy Spirit right here. No place I'd rather be, Lord, than right here with my brothers and sisters as we worship you, as we sing to your praise, as we tell you how great you are, as we spend time in your word, as we seek to experience your miraculous power wherever we need that power today. Teach us at that very moment, Father. Prepare us to take your supper. Prepare us to leave with a renewed sense of your presence and your miraculous power in our lives, in our hearts, in our needs. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to spring, right? I mean, you know, you wouldn't know it out there. I saw the other day that we had five non-gloomy days in all of February. No wonder we're kind of going crazy. And March is kind of starting the same way, but this is the month in which spring begins, and it's because of that. It's because on the 20th of March, the sun will be directly over the equator and you'll have 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness and that officially begins spring. But the weather didn't get the memo, did it, out there. This is also named March for a less than sunny reason. This month is named for that guy. That's the Roman god of war, Mars. The Greeks called him Ares, the Romans called him Mars. And I found this week something I didn't know. This month, named for the god of Mars, was apparently named appropriately. The war in Vietnam started in March. So did a NATO action in Yugoslavia. So did our incursion in Iraq. So did our involvement in Syria. So did military action in Yemen and in Libya. More wars start in March than any other month of the year. I don't think it's because of this guy. I don't think he's up there on Mount Olympus making all that happen, but just kind of an interesting coincidence. And wars are not the only reason we need the miraculous power of God, which will be our conversation today. This is Archie. Archie is obviously a rhinoceros who gored one of his handlers last week and sent her to the hospital. In worse news, this lady in South Carolina was playing with her dogs in the front yard last week when they attacked her and killed her in her front yard. In better news, on, let's see, I think it was Friday of last week in 2007, this military action occurred. Switzerland invaded Liechtenstein. 
Yeah. The way it happened was the Swiss army, of, there actually is a Swiss army, I don't know why there is, but there is, had 150 troops that were out on, uh, on exercises. None of them had ammunition in their guns. They don't do that in Switzerland. They just march around with guns with no ammunition. And they made a wrong turn. And they invaded Liechtenstein. Well, Liechtenstein didn't know it. They didn't get a report about this at the time. Liechtenstein, it turns out, is the size of McKinney, Texas. About 30,000 folks live in Liechtenstein. When they got the report, they would have uh, fought back, except they have no army. So what are you going to do? So they just all declared victory and went on. You need more than just that in your life today, I would imagine. We're walking through the life of Peter. And today we're going to watch him do one of the most amazing miracles in the New Testament and one of the most overlooked passages in the New Testament. I found this story this week, thought I really need to talk to you about it. So then I went back to see what I've said about it in the past and have never taught on the past. This first time in all my 40-something years of preaching. I started preaching in kindergarten, in case you were wondering, Brian. Um, why'd y'all laugh when I said that? Why did why, why? Dennis, why'd you laugh at that? Why'd, why'd you laugh at that? So uh, anyway, but in all those years, I've never looked at this particular passage. And so I did this week, and I was really fascinated by what I found. So here's the question. Is there a place in your life where you need God to do what only God can do? Where you need what we would call a miracle? It might be physical. It might be emotional. It might be financial. It might be relational. But where in your life do you need God to show up? Do you need God to be God? How does that work? Does it still work? Does God still do that? And if so, what do we do to experience what God can do? That's the question. So here's the passage. It's in Acts chapter 9, starts in verse 36. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Tabitha is Aramaic for gazelle. Luke is translating this into Greek, Dorcas. If you go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, he writes it for a fellow named Theophilus, which is a Greek name, means lover of God, probably a Roman soldier or Roman official who doesn't know Aramaic. And so all through Luke's gospel, he's constantly translating Aramaic terms into Greek terms so that his reader, Theophilus, can understand. And that's what he does here. Tabitha translated means Dorcas, and all this happens in Joppa or Jaffa as it's typically called today, an amazing city. When we go to Israel, we always make sure to go there. There's Jaffa or Joppa today. It's on the outskirts of what is modern-day Tel Aviv, as we'll see in just a second. That was, and some think it's the oldest seaport in all of history. It certainly was the biggest seaport in the biblical era. It's got a cove there, as I'll show you in just a second. And it's through that port right there that logs were floated down from up here and came through Jaffa to come down to Jerusalem to build the temple and the palace of Solomon. Came through Joppa. It was at the seaport of Joppa that Jonah caught a ship going to Tarshish over in Spain because he's trying to run from going to Nineveh. All that happened in Joppa or Jaffa as well. Here's what it looks like from the Tel Aviv side, at least parts of it. That's a modern Roman Catholic church dedicated to St. Peter because the belief is that right in that area is where Peter was staying at the home of Simon the Tanner when he had that vision. You remember it's actually in the next chapter of the book of Acts where the sheet is let down three times. Remember it had unclean animals according to Jewish tradition and Peter hears a voice, take and eat and 
Peter argues with God. I love Peter. He argues with God and he says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. And right then a knock comes at the door and it's Gentiles wanting Peter. And Peter makes the way 33 miles to the north and Cornelius and the first Gentile conversion and all of that in Acts chapter 10. Incredible story. When we go to Caesarea, when we do our trips over there, we always talk about it. Well, all that happened right here. Peter was in Jaffa because of the story we're about to talk about. And that church commemorates where that happened. This is, hang on, by tradition, the actual place where Simon the Tanner's house was. We still find it today. And they claim that goes back 20 centuries, that particular structure. And it was right there where Peter was staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. If you go back just a little bit, that's a ruin of an Egyptian wall in Jaffa that goes back to 13 centuries before Christ. This is modern Tel Aviv, started in 1909, just up the shore from Joppa. Back in the day, Joppa was this ancient, it goes, it's 4,500 years old, this ancient city. And then in 1909, the Jews built the modern city of Tel Aviv, and now they're all connected. Now you wouldn't know the difference. Well, we stay in one of the hotels up here, and then we encourage people to make their way down. It's just a couple miles to walk down and kind of tour around in Joppa. It's a beautiful old city, as you can see. And it was right there in that city of Jaffa that this occurs. There was in Jaffa a disciple named Tabitha, translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Nonetheless, she's about to die. Good deeds don't prevent bad things. It's one of the real questions, isn't it? Hey, I'm so good. I even came to chapel on a really cold, windy, wet day, and yet your car can still break down going home. Or you can still get cancer. You can still have bad stuff happen. It's really one of the frustrations, isn't it, that, that it doesn't work on a curve, you know? We like to say, I like to say, if God were fair, this wouldn't happen to us. If God were fair, this wouldn't have happened to Tabitha. She wouldn't die. She wouldn't become ill and die if life were fair, we say. Well, the other side of that is be careful what you ask for. If, really, if you really want life to be fair, you get a ticket every time you speed. You'd get caught every time you said something that wasn't true. You'd have every unclean thought exposed. You'd have everything you think you're getting away with made available to the rest of us. Would you want your last 24 hours up on that screen? Aren't you glad God isn't fair? I was preaching a sermon at First Baptist Midland years ago. The title was, Is God Fair? And I spent the whole week preparing to defend the fairness of God. So I'm walking by the coffee room on my way back to the office on Sunday morning. A friend of mine, Charlotte Cook, is in making copies for the youth group she's about to teach. She'd seen the title of the sermon, and she grinned and said, aren't you glad God's not fair? I had 10 minutes to go completely redo the sermon. <laughs> and I have held it against her ever since. I see Charlotte when I go out to Midland, and I still remind her of what she did to me all those years ago. We're grateful, I guess, on one level, God's not fair, but nonetheless, it certainly doesn't seem fair. She's a person full of good works, acts of charity, but she became ill and she died. So they washed her. That's in preparation for burial. And they laid her in an upper room, an upstairs room that was kind of a guest area, kind of a guest room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So they have a sense that God could still do something about this. It would make more sense to us if they sent Peter, sent for Peter to come when she was sick. She's already died. It's like calling for the doctor after someone dies. But that's what they're doing here. They've seen Jesus raise the dead. They've seen God do miraculous things through Peter. And so now they're going to call for, even though she's died, they're going to call for Peter. She apparently died so suddenly that they didn't have a chance 
to call for Peter ahead of time. It's not very far away. Light is just 12 miles from Joppa. And so they run in their days to us. Walking 12 miles was kind of a big deal. In their days, that's absolutely nothing. That's just kind of how you got around. So they get over to Lida. They get Peter. They bring him back to Joppa. He rose. He went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments the Dorcas made while she was with them. Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down, and he prayed. He didn't pray over her. He didn't pray standing up. He knelt in a posture of supplication and submission before God. He's not even looking at her, as you'll see in a second. She's over here. Her body is laid out over here in the supper room, and Peter's over here beside her on his knees, interceding, praying. It says he knelt down and prayed, but I think this is interesting. The Greek word there translated prayed means prayed once. There's a Greek imperative, or excuse me, uh, imperfect that would say he continually prayed, kept on praying. This is an aorist, which means he prayed once. He got on his knees and he prayed. And then he turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He prayed. And in that moment, he had some kind of confirmation or some kind of word, something from the Lord that caused him to know that when he turned to the corpse, he could say, Tabitha, rise, knowing that she would, and she did. He gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows. By the way, saints just means believers, all right? Very different than it means today. Calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. That's a very important point. Joppa was, as I said, the, maybe the oldest seaport in the world, certainly the largest one there. So what happens here is going to go out by ship all over the world. As people come in and out, as they trade, as they sail in and out, as this word goes out, it's going to spread everywhere. A really good place to start a movement is someplace like New York City. Or some place that has a port, some place that's available to the world, and that's what happens here. And so the question for us is, can God, would God still do today what he did then? The story's not in the Bible for Tabitha's sake. Do you think she'd ever forget that this happened? If you died and someone prayed and spoke your name and you rose back to life, you probably don't need someone to write that down to remind you what happened, right? It's not there for her sake. It's there for our sake. So why is it there for our sake. Can God, does God still work miracles today? Our culture says no. Our scientific, secular, post-Christian culture says absolutely not. That this is uh, a figment of imagination. This is wish fulfillment. This is mythological superstition. That this is absolutely categorically not possible today. And we get that for some reasons. Now I'm going to go over to my day job for just a second. All right. What I do today with you, I just, I love doing this is kind of just a fun thing to do. But what I do during the week is really think about cultural issues and kind of worldview and philosophy and all that for a second. So meet Benedict Spinoza. All right. You've probably never heard of Benedict Spinoza in a sermon. Benedict Spinoza was one of the best known rationalists of the day back in the 17th century. He claimed that try to do this briefly. He claimed that laws of nature cannot be broken because they're laws of nature, rationally. The law of, of gravity cannot be broken rationally, or else it's not a law. 
Isaac Newton said, the world operates like a machine. And machines can't be, uh, can't be invaded miraculously. If my car breaks down on the way back to Dallas, the way to fix it is mechanical, not miraculous. David Hume taught us, he's called Father of Modern Skepticism. He's an empiricist as opposed to the rationalist. He says, everything you know comes through experience. And because I don't experience miracles, there can be no such thing as miracles. It all goes back to this statement by John Stuart Mill. If we do not already believe in supernatural agencies, no miracle can prove to us their existence. They just can't. An atheist will not be persuaded by Acts chapter 9 and Peter and Dorcas, right? Because he already believes that's not possible. I already believe that the Muslim version of God is not true. So if a Muslim tries to convince me that as he prayed, Allah answered his prayer in some miraculous way, I'm not going to believe him because I don't believe, I already presuppositionally do not believe that his religious viewpoint is correct. I don't believe that praying to Buddha can bring about a miracle. And so if someone claims they did, I'm going to say, well, they're mistaken. Well, that's how the secular world looks at our faith. There was a fellow named Ernst Trelsch who taught historians that nothing can have happened in the past that doesn't happen in the present. In other words, if people don't walk on water today, Jesus didn't walk on water. If bodies don't rise from the dead today, Dorcas didn't rise from the dead. And that principle has governed how history has been written for the last hundred years. That idea. That rationalistic, empiricistic idea that what I experience today must be the way it was then. And if I don't experience miracles, there are no such thing as miracles. So you come along to Acts 9 and Dorcas and you say, well, that's myth or that's superstition or that's legend or that's tradition or maybe it's a parable of sorts. Maybe, maybe the idea here is that if we have faith in God, then God will, will, will present himself in our lives as though we were raised from the dead. Maybe we can turn it into some kind of symbolism is the idea. None of which, of course, is biblically true. At the end of the day, if God is God, then God can do what God wants to do. It's really a binary decision. Do you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? If you do, then you have to believe he can do with his creation whatever he wants to do with his creation. I can do with this remote right now what I want to do with it. This is in my hand. I've got control of it. I can stomp on it. I can throw it. I can play catch with it. I can do what I want with it because I'm controlling it. I can do what I want with my car because I own my car. If I created my car, that would be even more the case. If you believe God created the world, it's not a huge stretch to believe that God can do with the world what he wants. The problem isn't that what we experience couldn't have happened. It's that what we experience so limits God in terms of what God can do. Here's the answer. And let me say this quickly, Einstein. I think of the comprehensibility of the world as a miracle. The idea that the world is a machine has changed drastically in recent years. The angry atheists that say that science has made religion irrelevant are not up with the times. There's been a move in Einsteinian relativity to say that science sees the world as much more fluid, as much more organic than it used to. There's much more room for incomprehensibility and mystery in the way science looks at the world today than a lot of people think is true. Quick example, and then I'll be done with my philosophy lesson here. Light travels as particle and it travels as wave, but it can't do both. It's called Bohr's model of complementarity. By one way of measuring light, it travels as particle. 
by another it travels as wave. The two contradict each other. So Bohr's model of complementarity says we accept them both. I had a physics major in one of my apologetics classes in seminary years ago who said that in his lab, the professor said, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, light travels as particle. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, it travels as wave. On Sunday, I can do whatever it wants because no one's there. Science doesn't have it as figured out as a lot of people think it does. Scientists know better. Einstein knew better. The idea that the world operates as some machine that can't be changed is not good, it's not only bad theology, it's really bad science. There's this sense, there's this understanding that science is far more organic than people thought that it was. Well, we could go on with that, but nonetheless, how do we experience then what God did? That's the question. The problem isn't with God, it's with me. The problem is I'm not putting myself in position to receive what God's miraculous power wants to give. That's the problem. If I need a miracle from God and I'm not experiencing God's best, it's not his fault, it's mine. When I was a youth minister in my first church, one of my jobs was changing the sign out on the street. I didn't know that, but apparently that was a youth minister's job, was to go out and take these long sticks with the suction thing at the end and stick the letters up on the sign, you know, and change the sign out there. turned out youth ministers had lots of jobs I didn't know youth ministers had. Mine wouldn't have been a youth minister if I'd known. But be that as it may, the one sign I remember that the pastor made me put up there one week said, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? Well, it's kind of that way with this. God hasn't changed. So if I'm not experiencing what... The Bible says God can do. Whose fault is it, is the question. What is it that we do? First of all, we ask God. Peter knelt down and prayed. <laughs> so much of my problems in my life, so many of my problems are because I didn't pray. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. I just literally didn't pray. Specifically, Peter prayed specifically. He didn't pray generically. God bless me. What do you do with that? You know? If I say to Dennis, Dennis, bless me. We don't say, well, did you sneeze? I mean, do you need money? Do you need a house? What, what do you need? We pray these generic prayers and wonder why God doesn't answer. Pray so specifically that you would know how to answer the prayer if you were God. God, I'm praying that you would intervene and raise Tabitha's body right now. Pray that specifically. Pray that directly. Pray with that kind of faith. Pray that individually and specifically is the first thing we learn. Then expect God to answer your prayer. Turning the body said, Tabitha, arise. Spurgeon used to get mad at people that prayed for rain but didn't bring umbrellas. You know? When I ask God to do the miraculous, I'm praying, but on the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I need a plan B here, you know? Because he's probably going to disappoint me. This probably isn't going to go the way I want it to. This probably isn't going to work. You have not because you ask not. A young pastor spoke to Charles Spurgeon one time, and he was really frustrated in his ministry, and he said, why is it that people don't respond when I preach? And Spurgeon said, well, you don't expect people to respond every time you preach, do you? And the young man said, oh, of course not. And Spurgeon said, that's why they don't. Pray and expect God to be God. Ask God to be God. And then here's the key. Then trust him to do whatever's best. What's best may not be what you want it to be. Just like when our kids or grandkids ask us for things, we can't always say yes. Sometimes no is better than yes, and they don't understand that. In this particular case, what was best was that 
Tabitha be raised from the dead. And here's why. It became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. But trust me, that wasn't best for Tabitha. Think about Tabitha, who's in heaven, in paradise. She's been through death. Now she's on the other side of death. Now she's in glory. And now she has to come back to that diseased, finite, broken, fallen body and has to die all over again. That's not best for her. It was best for Joppa. It was best for all the people that would believe in the Lord because of this. But it wasn't best for her. I heard a missionary one time say, we spend more time praying saints out of heaven than we do praying sinners out of hell. You know? When somebody's sick, we pray for God to heal them, and we should. I think that's a, just as Peter did. It's, it's good to pray for God to heal them. But if God doesn't heal them physically but eternally, that's an even better answer to the prayer, right? It's like a guy told his wife when they died and went to heaven, he looked around and said, I'd have been here 10 years earlier if it wasn't for all those bran muffins you made me eat, you know? I promise you one second on the other side, Tabitha was so glad she was there. One second on the other side, the people you love who have died are so glad they're home. And even though to us it's grief, as it should be, grief is the price we pay for love. And Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, and it's appropriate for us to grieve and for us to want them to be here and for us to pray for God to intervene. But then we ask God to do what's best and understand that quite often what's best for them isn't what's best for us. And what we want may not be what God wants because God loves them even more than we do. And he's a father, and he knows what's best. The other side of the Tabitha story is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Here's a guy that wrote half the New Testament. Here's the greatest theologian, missionary, evangelist in history. And yet he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. It might have been eyesight. might have been uh, epilepsy. might have been malarial headaches or some of the most common theories. But he had this thorn in the flesh. And three times he pled with God to remove it. Well, you would think if anybody is going to have his prayer answered the way he prayed, it would be Paul, right? And yet Paul writes... That God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God didn't remove his thorn. God redeemed his thorn. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You ask God, you trust God, and then you depend on God to do what's best. Because what's best may not be what we think at the time is best. In First Baptist Midland, we had a dear saint, Helen Spinks by name, who had uh, breast cancer when Jan and I got there back in, in the late 80s when we started serving out there. One of the most godly people I've ever known. One of the most joyful people I've ever known. I prayed. Jan and I prayed. Our church prayed. The whole community knew Helen and Helen Spinks. And they prayed. And Helen died. And in the moment she died, she didn't. God healed her eternally. Had God healed her body, she'd still have to die at some point. But the way that Helen withstood her suffering, the joy in her soul, the way she prayed for you if you came to pray for her, the way that she cared for you if you came to care for her, you couldn't be with her for a minute before she found this 
subtle way of turning the conversation on to you and how are you and how's your family and what's going on in your life and the way that she impacted people through her illness, I'm convinced, brought more people to the Lord and closer to God than would have been the case if God had healed her physically. God healed her eternally and redeemed her physical suffering for his glory and her good and our good because he's God. So I don't know what your Tabitha is today. I don't know what it is in your life where you need God to be God. But I would encourage you to ask God, trust God, depend on him to do what's best. And the next time you wonder if he loves you enough to do that, remember this, okay? This is just bread and grape juice. But remember what it signifies. And know that he did it just for you and he would do it all again just for you. If you were the only sinner on the planet, Jesus would come again and die just for you. And let's trust that love. Pray with me. Take this moment. Name your Tabitha. Name the place where you need God to be God. Ask him for what it is you think you need. Ask him for it right now. Trust him that he's heard you. And tell him that you'll trust him to do what's best. Father, I pray that we will live a lifestyle that depends upon and experiences the miraculous power of Jesus out of what we've experienced of the power of Jesus today. I pray in Jesus' name. Before we close, the first Sunday of every month, we always take the Lord's Supper together. So we'll do that very briefly. We'll see Mike and whoever you have set up. Let's come share the bread and the cup. Don't eat or drink until all of this is distributed. Chad will be our organist today. We need an organ. No, we don't. We have a, we have a guitar. And we're going to share this with you. If Jesus is your Lord, you are welcome at his table. So let's take just a moment. Let's take the elements of our Lord's Supper, and then we'll take them together.
Well, thank you. To our ushers, especially our youngest usher. Thank you, Ray, very much. The Bible says that when Jesus gathered with his disciples on that Monday, Thursday night, he took bread and he said, uh, this is my body which is broken for you. They had no idea what he meant. They couldn't conceive that the next day he would be tortured and crucified. But we know what he meant. And we know he did this for us. So let's do this in remembrance of him. Our Father, we take this bread in gratitude for what it means, for what it cost, and for the fact that you still love us as much as when you watched your son die for us. We receive that love in Jesus' name. Amen. Then after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And they had no idea. Didn't know what he meant. There's an old covenant. Old covenant based on the law. A new covenant. Based on grace. And the grace we have in Christ. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to trying to earn what God gives. Don't go back to trying to convince God to love you. When he already does. Serve him because he loves you, not so he'll love you. Trust him because he loves you, not so he'll love you. Don't live in the old covenant. Take the new covenant. Let's do that together. My Father, we celebrate the new covenant. May we live all week in the new covenant. May, live, may we live all week asking and trusting and depending on your best. And wherever we go, may it be Joppa. And wherever we go, may others see us and believe in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Have a good week.